1: This is a CBC podcast.
2: Hi, I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Welcome to the Sunday Magazine podcast, featuring the stories we first brought you Sunday, March 3rd on CBC Radio. Parliament's now on a two-week break, but the politics don't stop. First up, our Sunday Politics panel is here to reflect on Brian Mulrooney's legacy and two big pieces of legislation that were introduced this past week. After that, from airdropping desperately needed food to a possible ceasefire, John Allen, a former Canadian ambassador to Israel, will join us to talk about the war between Israel and Hamas after months of fighting. Coming up, you know him from his books like Tuesdays with Maury and The Five People You Meet in Heaven. I'll be speaking with Mitch Albom about his latest novel, which explores the timely themes of truth, lies, and the power of forgiveness. And later on, dust off your dictionary because all of us will need one when we play an all-new round of our monthly challenge, That's Puzzling. It all starts right now on The Sunday Magazine. It's been more than three decades since he was Prime Minister, but many of the political decisions he made are still being felt today. Tributes have been pouring in for Brian Mulrooney following his death on Thursday. Tributes from his contemporaries as well as politicians in Parliament. The House of Commons is now on a scheduled two-week break, and when it returns, MPs will debate two major pieces of legislation the government introduced this past week. There is, however, no break for our Sunday politics panel. So joining me are Susan Delacroix. National Columnist with the Toronto Star, Matt Gurney, SiriusXM XM host and co-founder of The Line on Substack, and Emily Nicolas, Columnist for Le Devoir. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. morning. (laughs) Susan, you began your career as a journalist covering Brian Mulroney in the 80s. A lot has been said about him over the past couple of days. You wrote a piece. uh, You said he was, quote, simultaneously gracious, also a bit over the top. How so?
3: I, I... Much as uh, the same way as all the tributes, too. (laughs) Um, I I think, uh, you know, it's still sinking into me that Brian Mulroney is is not around because, as I did write, he he was larger than life. Uh, I can tell you as a young reporter here, it was fun to cover him because you just never knew what he was going to say or do or what national drama was going to be launched by the day's events. And this was a time, too. Where we there was a sort of national conversation, much of it around the Constitution, which I was covering at the time, so it, it really it, it really was a, a historic time to be a journalist and and fun and interesting hm Emily, and he made it that way.
2: yeah hmm. Emily, you have your own experience with Mulroney um from when you were a junior fellow at Massey College. We'll talk about Quebec specifically in a moment, but how are you remembering the former prime minister?
4: um yeah i I met uh, Brian Mulroney uh in uh, 2014 um i was a I was a junior fellow at Massey uh, when nelson Nelson Mandela passed away and um a bunch of students um decided to um have a i, I guess a lecture or a lesson of history directly from uh, the people who had played uh, the largest role in that and trying to see. Uh, how the decision or the shift on on Canada's uh, position on on apartheid happened, and so we invited Brad Maloney and Stephen Lewis, who was at the time the UN ambassador, uh, Canada's ambas- ambassador to the UN. Um, and it was really interesting to see how that shift happened. You know, there's a lot of things in Maloney's record in terms of human rights that do not necessarily align with that decision he made on on apartheid um i'm thinking about the oka crisis and other things but on that i remember very well Stephen Lewis himself saying you know the the moment that bramaleni stood up uh, at the UN national assembly and said that there would be um essentially they would be thinking about um breaking relationships uh with this with uh with, with south africa if it, or and imposing sanctions uh if apartheid was not Um, was was, was to continue uh, was a a moment that everybody at the UN uh, General Assembly saw as historic, especially the African delegates and the the representative of African states. And so that is something that is to be remembered and also made me think about, you know, what else has changed in Canada is is its involvement uh, in international relations back when we did that in 2014, but also very much right now in 2024. And what do you see when you say that? Um, you know, even back then in 2014, I remember I was looking at the note. I saw both Brian Mulroney and, and and Stephen Lewis. Brian Mulroney actually said, and we have this on record, that he if he had been prime minister in 1994. Canada would have played a different role in uh, Wanda because he said, we had done something about Ethiopia. We could have done something about Rwanda. Obviously, that's very much a lot of shade thrown at Jean Chrétien. Uh, it's a huge comment to make, and we can never redo a history like that with if. Uh, but they were both very, uh, you know, seeing a decline of, of Canada's involvement in causes that are about, you know, morality and making the right stand when uh the fight against apartheid. Um in that in that context, it was very much about st- standing up to Margaret Thatcher in the UK, which who was a woman that um Brian Miller admired personally. Um and I don't remember personally the last time that um, you know a Kenyan Prime Minister stood up like that to one of our allies, would it be the UK, or especially I think in this in this current context, uh the United States. Mm. And Joe Biden. And so for 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 somebody uh, that is a Canadian prime minister to stand up to, um, you know, a world leader um, that that would have been the same ilk of Margaret Thatcher today. uh, I haven't seen that in a really long time. Um, And um, it's you know, the, the name of our event was principled leadership and what it takes to make that kind of tough call. I haven't seen this kind of tough call uh made uh i think in my own living you know memory hmm. of uh, of uh, you know how of of course i was alive at the time but i was not this i was too young to be politically <laughs> conscious
2: Okay, Matt, so Emily's talked about Mulrooney's international um, impact. You were also very young, I know, because um, we're dating everyone on the program this morning, apparently, <laughs> um, uh, when Mulrooney was in office. But how do you see him having shaped conservative politics and the country we have today?
5: Well, see, and that's a fascinating question, because I, I think very much like Emily, like I remember Brian Mulrooney. He was not my first prime minister. I was born before he was prime minister. But by the time I was in journalism, He had already gone through his post-political transformation where he had been prime minister. He had won the two conservative majorities. He had then gone through the obliteration of the party that he had run and the the period of the 1990s where he was better known for allegations of financial impropriety. But by the time I was in journalism, he had completed that metamorphosis back into conservative elder statesman. And I just don't mean for the conservative party, but I mean for the country at large. And that to me was incredible. And I think it did mirror a little bit the, um, the resuscitation of conservatism in this country as a electorally viable movement. Like, it's always been an ideologically viable movement. A, a fairly consistent number of Canadians would identify as conservative. But, you know, during the 1990s, and Emily's already made the reference here, this was the time of Jean Chrétien. This was the time of liberal ascendancy, where the conservative opposition had fragmented. You had the, the kind of what was left of the PCs, you had the reform, you had the Quebec wing breaking off largely into the bloc, and it took a long time, just like basically 20 years to begin to stitch that back together. I don't want to say that Brian Mulroney was responsible for that. In fact, I know that there were some conservatives who blamed him for the schism happening in in the first place. But I do think if you want to kind of track the return of conservatism as a political force in Canada into being electorally viable and then you plot that against sort of Brian Mulroney's post-politics trajectory, they don't line up perfectly. But boy, they do tend to move in the same direction, don't they?
2: Hmm. Susan, um, Matt just referenced uh, the Airbus affair. It was a big scandal <laughs> for those of us who were um, sentient at the time. Big scandal at the time. Uh, for those who weren't, um, Mulroney admitted to taking envelopes stuffed with a lot of cash from this middleman working for Airbus, a guy named Carl Heinz Schreiber. How important will that scandal be when you know future historians look back at Mulroney's legacy? And how should we remember it?
3: I think we can remember it. I, you know, I know people who say it, it permanently. Toxifies the 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 lead legacy i I think that's a bit much i i think it will be a a sad personal footnote i think that's how I took it it was um a sign of what Matt was referring to sort of the the bad years of um of brian mulroney when the 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 immediate shock of nineteen ninety three and the once great conservative party being reduced to two seats and its prime minister reduced to doing some Low-level lobbying with a you know uh, not altogether sketchy uh, or sketchy kind of dealings. I I don't I think that's that's a personal unfortunate footnote. I think I I, I will say I I think it's interesting. Uh, both uh, Emily and Matt have pointed this out that you know the. Post-Prime Minister, he is remembered for a lot of things, and I think we have to remember the economic legacy of him, too, that is so important. I think, though, what struck me as I've been watching all these tributes, and, you know, I'm going to get backlash for this, but how much Brian Mulroney's... When people say the modern Conservative Party of Pierre Polyev is not your dad's Conservative Party, we're talking about Brian Mulroney's Mm. Conservative Party. There there is... all of the nostalgia you're seeing too was for a very different kind of conservatism and a different Um, country
2: too at the time. Yes,
3: for sure. For sure. But I think, I think it's safe to say that this prime minister had better relations with the current liberal prime minister than he did or had with Pierre Polyev. I think there's the, the blue liberal and the um, red Tory, it, that was more of a, a force when Brian Mulroney was around, hmm. and I'm just not sure that that Mulroney's legacy can be seen in the modern Conservative Party of today. Hmm.
2: There will, of course, be um, a state funeral for him and many more tributes in the coming days when that funeral is um, is yet to be determined. But, Emily, just before uh, we kind of move on from talking about Brian Mulroney, I mean, he was the little guy from Bay Como, um, the guy from Quebec. Mm-hmm. The constitutional efforts with both Meech Lake and the Charlottetown Accord, um, very, very important to that province and to the rest of the country. As you mentioned, he sent the military into Oka in Quebec. How's... Amal Rooney being remembered in Quebec, or how do you think he will be remembered in Quebec?
4: Um, he was the middle ground guy in terms of um, this generation of the in the 80s and the 90s that's very much shaped by constitutional debate. Uh, you know, the Boris guy uh, that um, tried the, the Meech Lake, uh, which was basically uh, trying to have Quebec fit into the constitution and sign, sign on the constitution. Um, I will I will say, though, that um, you know, we're saying how Brian Mulroney is remembered as the person who could, you know, reach a cross party line. Um, it was very much true in the example that I use with appointing Stephen Lewis as, as, as a UN ambassador, Stephen Lewis being a former NDP leader. Um, however, the big line, the big, the big divide was very much his break uh, with Lucien Bouchard and the foundation of the Bloc Québécois. That was the big Um, you know, the the big divide of Mm. of the time. And we just uh, all heard on national television uh, when Brownlee passed, Lucien Bouchard did did come on on television and talk about their very, very, very late and recent um, reconciliation. And so that also, I think, speaks to me to the depth of the wounds uh, in Quebec nationalism, mm. in Quebec politics, to this day, on on that generation, that was essentially how how you know close that referendum was, and how there is still you know resentment on that uh, is is hard to quell for for that generation, uh, and more and more of the protagonists of that generation are either you know passing away and or. Aging, and so, but there's something about that page of history uh, that we were reliving, you know, on Radio Canada, when people, you know, Jean Jean uh, sorry, uh, jean and Lucien, sorry, Jean and Lucien Bouchard were remembering. Brown only there's something about that that is uh, about you know oral history of uh, of that page of of Canadian history essentially. Mm-hmm.
2: If you're just joining us this morning, I'm joined by our Sunday politics panel. Uh, that was Emily Nicolai. You were just hearing there as well as Susan Delacourt and Matt Gurney. Matt, um, you know, this past week, as I mentioned off the top, there are two major pieces of legislation put forth. And I actually want to hopefully we'll have time to talk about both of them. So first, let's uh, talk about pharmacare. This is a deal the Liberals negotiated with the NDP. The NDP demanded it in exchange for continuing to support the government. So this is just the first step of a national program with two classes of drugs being covered. But Matt, in terms of the politics of this, how big of a win is this and for who?
5: You see, that's a really interesting question because I've actually been thinking about the politics of this for, well, since it was announced. And I mean, in terms of who it's a win for, let's start with the obvious. It's a win for the, the people who's, Uh, did not have access to either a provincial or a private drug plan who will now save some money uh, accessing uh, drugs that either make their lives better in in the case of contraception or in the case of diabetes, allow them to have a life. So like, there are real Canadians who are going to benefit from this, and we shouldn't overlook that. But what I was struck by uh, when this was announced was, with all respect to those Canadians, the fairly limited scope of this, the NDP have been talking for many, many years about their aspirations for a sweeping universal pharmacare plan. And what we got was not that. What we got was, you know, I think, as, as you just said, Pierre, like what we got is what they're calling a first step. Yeah, it's a first step, but it's a very modest first step. And I've been wondering about that. We all know, we all saw that the NDP had very publicly said, Jugmeet Singh, the leader himself, had gone out and said that if they didn't get a deal on this, if there wasn't progress, then the NDP was prepared to walk away from their deal with the liberals. So they were playing hardball in public about the importance of this. And what we got was fairly modest. And what I'm honestly curious about, and I, I don't know, like I I want to hear what the others have to say about this. I don't know if this was the extent of the deal that they could come up with on short notice that this was basically mm-hmm. the liberal said okay we've got a deadline to the end of the month what can we slam together now that will keep the ndp happy and you know we can worry about the rest later Or the other possibility is that this was simply as far as the liberals were willing to go. And it wasn't an issue of timing. It wasn't an issue of pressure. But it was the liberals going, look, we'll throw you a bone to keep you guys happy. We'll give you something you can declare uh, as a victory in public. But we're not prepared to go any further than this at this time. I don't honestly know which of the two it is, but I would love to know because the politics of that would be fascinating.
2: (laughs) Susan, why don't you chime in here? How are you reading this politically?
3: About the same way Matt is. Um, I I think that it it is pretty modest to start, and it's very processy. Uh, the kind of political stories we all hate doing. There are so many provincial provincial negotiations to have before this is happening. There's a committee to steady the cost. It's it's pure Ottawa in that way. <laughs> What really struck me when I was watching Jagmeet Singh take the victory lap on this, which he's owed, was how much pressure is on Canadians to keep this. What he is saying basically is you're going to get pharmacare Canadians if you put pressure on your provincial governments Mm -hmm. to go along with this. And are we that kind of a nation right now that uh, puts pressure on provincial governments to do more? Or are we a kind of a nation that says, look, we, we've had enough of governments messing in our lives. I think that's that's a big existential question that is out there right now. And is there enough time before the next election to make it a ballot question, as, as Jagmeet Singh seems to think it might be? I, I think right now it's lost in process. I agree. I, I totally endorse what Matt said about it, it will be very good for people if it does happen, but it's... It's not here yet. It's an idea still.
2: Yeah, that, that's the big if, because uh, health care, of course, is a provincial responsibility. Albert and Quebec have already said thanks, but no thanks. Um, Ontario says, look, we're mulling it over. So, Emily, uh, I know every province has different reasons, but if we look at Quebec as, as one of the provinces, a major province, saying no thank you, why is Quebec Premier François Legault saying he wants no part of this? Like Again, what are the politics behind this?
4: Well, so there's already a form of pharmacare in Quebec. Um, so uh federal involvement in that could um, mean essentially re- renegotiation with the private insurance that that are that are responsible for that but i I, I think before people think that you know it's not touching them or I, I think it'd be very important for people to understand how 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 that works and how when you do have that medical insurance essentially if you don't Or if you're not insured by your employer, uh, you do you do have that basic coverage that's coming out of government. Uh, I already know that what the federal government is thinking of is different from what Quebec already has. Uh, For example, everything that has to do with contraception, um, it's there is a minimal, essentially um, uh, price that you pay every month, and before uh, or a, a minimum amount of dollars that you pay if you need medication and above that essentially now you're reimbursed by the RMQ by the, by the um, so um, if you're only taking birth control right now, uh, that's not reimbursed to you as a, as a young woman in Quebec and so there there would be policy changes uh, from what the federal government has announced but it's up to Jagmeet Singh and Justin Trudeau um, and, and the feds to actually communicate around that, otherwise it, it also goes above the heads of a lot of Quebecers as well.
2: Hmm. Okay, we'll wait to see if that big if becomes a actual piece of um, legislation, if it passes through the House, a lot to come on the Pharmacare uh, debate and decisions. Uh, the other big piece of legislation that the Liberals tabled this past week was the online harms bill. Um, this bill is, would introduce new rules for content on the Internet around bullying uh, and child abuse. Susan, you know, as a parent kind of watching this, you like you want anything that's going to help protect your, mm. ch- your children, right? So you're kind of like, well, this is great. Except for then you have, um, you know, people saying it's not gone far enough. You have Conservative leader Pierre Polyev coming out swinging against this bill, even before it was put forward, accusing the Liberals of attacking freedom of speech and expression. How are you assessing this bill politically?
3: <laughs> I am thinking how unfortunate it is that an online harms bill is going to be b- debated online. You know, the, the the very worst place now to have a political debate is online uh, and about online things. I, I, I almost want to tell Pierre Polyev and Justin Trudeau and Jagmeet Singh, don't talk about this online because the very reason we need this legislation is, is uh, playing out on Twitter or whatever just really, really badly. Hmm. So um, I'm not looking forward to the debate about this. I'm not entirely convinced that it's going to be reasonable or nuanced, and I think that's what we do need. Emily, how are you looking at this um, proposed uh, piece of legislation?
4: Um, it's it's really interesting what Susan just said, because um, in terms of the scope of, legis- of the legislation, it's much more narrowed and focused than what a lot of uh, people uh, had hoped for, in terms of really focusing on um uh, you know children's uh abuse and um which is something that directly falls into the kind of discourse that the conservative have been talking a lot about to do you know protection of children protection of parents is, is one of their their Q vocabulary and so uh it's really interesting how even that uh is is divisive. There's a lot of other questions in terms of you know what else is going to be put in place in terms of the criminal uh the the, the, the criminal code um, but I'm also seeing that just like um, any kind of violence, any other form of violence that we've tried to push uh, against uh, as a as a country, because a lot of the online violence and even the violence against children online is is focused on young girls and and young women. Um, a lot of that comes down to policing as well. And so if those things exist in the criminal record, but it's very hard uh, for young girls to be believed or young women to be taken seriously when they go to uh, the police because of the harassment they're facing online. Um, that's, you know, changing the deals, the, the things in the criminal um, the criminal court code is not necessarily going to lead to a lot of social change. And we've seen that in the offline, ver- uh, you know, violence uh, against against women and girls. We know that already. And so I, I do think that the bill uh, is achieving certain things. Um, but at the same time, if we think that the problem of online violence is going to be solved just by that instead of a conversation about our wars and, and an observation of the business model that is farming hate, uh, that is making people billionaires nowadays I'm thinking about the online platforms, um, if we don't re-examine that business model and how it controls our life, it's basically a whack-a-mole game where we're just going to be trying to put in prison, essentially, or, or have amends against the people who... Um, cross a line, but we don't we 're not attacking the game itself mm. and how it's it's been transforming our our uh, people's ability to have a public voice
2: Those are the substantive issues that um this bill is supposed to at least partially address, and as Emily suggests there, maybe it doesn't go far enough but Matt, in the discussion, especially leading up to the introduction of this bill um it is being put in a stew um of freedom of speech and expression by Pierre Poliev and his party. Is this a good political positioning by the conservative, or is it a red herring as critics have suggested it is?
5: You know, the interesting thing is about that, P is I think it's both. And the reason I think it's both, and I, I'm, I'm not just trying to cover off every position simultaneously. I think the liberals have proposed here 80% of a good bill. I think that in terms of both the politics and the policy, I think the stuff targeting revenge, pornography, child sexual abuse material, threats of violence, things like that. These are real online harms. And I think the policy proposals uh, that the contained within the bill to address them. Are material improvements we all know either through direct experience or at least having read about it how hard it is to fight this stuff online how little a uh, few resources police have to be blunt often how little interest the police have in dealing with things that are overt criminal acts <laughs> but oh it happened on the internet so we're not going to worry about it if the liberals were to pull out that stuff into a separate bill I think it would be impossible for the conservatives to oppose it. Like, I think the policy proposals are real. The solutions are proposed, are improvements over the status quo. The problems are widely recognized. Y'all remember Vic Taves? You can stand with us or you can stand with the child pornographers. Like, the conservatives could find themselves in the exact opposite position they were in then. They could be the ones refusing to support a bill that would actually make children safe from sexual exploitation online where the liberals are going to get into trouble on this one and where the conservatives do have political opportunity is in trying to figure out a way to define hate speech that actually covers the vile stuff that exists online and does not run up against free expression concerns Hmm. here. No one's ever been able to do that successfully, right? We've been trying to do that for decades, and the reason we keep getting into trouble isn't because the people who tried were dumb or lazy. It's because it's really hard. (laughs) That's the part of the bill that's going to get the liberals in trouble. That's the part of the bill where the conservatives will have an opportunity to attack.
2: Okay, lots to come on both those bills, and of course, the state funeral um, being planned for Brian Mulroney. More details coming soon. Uh, thank you all three. Appreciate you uh, with us this Sunday morning.
3: Thank you, Thanks, thank guys. you,
2: Susan Delacourt, national columnist with the Toronto Star. Matt Gurney is a Sirius XM host and co-founder of the Line on Substack, and Emily Nicolas is a columnist for Le Devoir. Let's now turn to the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. It is catastrophic. There is growing starvation and disease. And after months of war between Israel and Hamas, the international community is now turning to airdrops of food and other aid to help Palestinian civilians survive. Yesterday saw the first airdrops of food by the United States. Canada says it too will be joining those efforts, but when exactly that might happen isn't known yet. And it all comes just days after aid brought into Gaza on trucks, saw 112 people killed, many by bullets, and hundreds more injured After people crowded around the trucks. Now, Hamas says the Israeli military fired at civilians, but Israel says it only fired warning shots and most people died in a crush. John Allen is a senior fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. He was also Canada's ambassador to Israel from 2006 to 2010. John, good morning to you.
0: Hi, Pia. Good morning.
2: I'm glad to have you with us. I think everyone um, can agree the situation in Gaza for civilians is bleak. The international community is now turning to airdrops, which um, is something we haven't seen in some time. What is your understanding of how effective airdrops are?
0: Well, um, one plane drops the equivalent of about one truck. And um, it's generally agreed that... uh, what Gaza and the Gazans need right now are about 500 trucks a day so this is not a real solution to the problem um, it probably helps uh Joe Biden politically a bit and um it will feed some people uh but it's not the uh it's not the answer to a, a growing problem of uh, famine in the north and starvation in the south um they need uh, a ceasefire that will allow hundreds of trucks uh, to be coming in with food, medicine, water, etc.
2: We'll see if we get a ceasefire. Those talks are on in Egypt uh, today, and we'll get to that in a minute with you, John. Um, but just to stay with airdrops for a moment, we saw about, I think it was about 38,000 meals dropped into Gaza. It's a trickle, as you say, for more than 2 million people. I know it's just the start, but this, this is a Herculean task, perhaps a risky one to... What are the risks in airdropping food and aid into Gaza? Um, You know, a lot of humanitarian groups say this is kind of a solution of last resort.
0: Well, we saw um, some of the risks where um, the British airdrop ended up in the uh, part of it in the ocean and boats going out to try and pick it up. Uh, another problem, of course, is who gets the food that's dropped, the strongest. Uh, you end up with a kind of Orwellian situation where uh, people who can get to the food and who can get it off uh, the pallets uh, get it, and perhaps uh, mothers with children don't get it. Um, and there may well be some black marketing going on. Uh, you know, you just don't know. There's there's no civil order, especially in the north. And as a result of that, um, there's no control uh, over those drops and uh, and who receives it.
2: Mm. And there's concern um, by Israel, its officials saying they don't want this food to get into the hands of Hamas as well. So that's a, another risk, it says, um, of these airdrops. But John, you know, you talk about need more trucks, and we've been hearing that for you know, five months now that more aid needs to get in by ground. What does that suggest that the world community has been ineffective in at least convincing Israel to let more aid in by ground? What does that say about the cloud of the US and its allies?
0: Well, it's really the US we're talking about. Its allies don't have much clout over Israel, but the US does have cloud and what it says is that the US is not prepared uh to do um what it needs to do uh to force uh, Netanyahu uh to uh, open up um the borders and get this uh, this humanitarian assistance in Netanyahu of course is being <clears throat> pressured by his right-wing coalition ministers not to do that and uh he i think uh, at uh, up until now at least uh, thinks that uh Maintaining their support and maintaining himself in power is more important than getting food into, uh, into the um, millions of starving Gazans.
2: The UN um, Special Rapporteur on the right to food has said that Israel is deliberately blocking essential aid into Gaza. It's an accusation that aid is becoming weaponized and politicized. To what extent do you agree with that kind of assessment?
0: Well, at the beginning of the war, right after October 7, there was an actual siege. Um, And um, as I've said, they need 500 trucks. Uh, For a period, 200 trucks were coming in. But most recently, that number is way down. Um, Senator Van Halen of uh, of the U.S. was there, and he called the inspection process for humanitarian assistance arbitrary. Um. So I I don't think Israel is doing all it can to get that food in. I think that's pretty clear. Uh, because if they wanted to, and and their pressure is increasing, they would uh, they would open up the the gates.
2: Hmm. I want to ask you about the incident um, that happened a few days ago when the trucks with aid on got got into. Gazan, we, we saw um, what happened from that. The Israeli military announced today that it's going to open an inquiry to examine the incident to prevent it from happening again. It also said it stands by its initial assessment that most people um, died from swarming, that, that it, its military did not fire on them. Should investigators from other countries be taking part in investigating what happened, given that you know, 112 people were killed, 700 plus were injured, to give those findings more credibility?
0: Yes, they should, but it won't happen. Hmm. Bill's not going to let um, international investigators come in. Uh, I, I don't recall them ever allowing it before, and I don't think it's going to happen now in the middle of a war. And even if it wasn't in the middle of a war, they will they will do their investigation themselves. Um, hopefully it will be Objective and real. And um, but uh, I don't uh, I really don't expect to see anybody else coming in at this point.
2: If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with John Allen, senior fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy, as well as a former Canadian ambassador to Israel. And we're, of course, talking about the ongoing war between Israel and Hamas and the impacts it's having. Um, John, let's talk about Canada for a bit. So Canada says it's also going to do airdrops. It won't do it itself with its own planes, but probably through the Jordanians or other, but Canada is going to supply stuff for these airdrops. Along with that, these past couple of days, I would say a handful of days, as I've been watching um, Foreign Affairs Minister, Minister Jolie, um, there seems to be a stronger, at least, tone coming out of what the government is saying um, about how Israel needs to do more to protect and help civilians in Gaza. Um, I know policy-wise, we haven't changed course, but at least the tone seems stronger to me. I don't know if you agree with that, but if you do, what is that signaling to you about Canada's position?
0: Well, I do agree with you, and I think it's generally been growing stronger, as has the tone of um, the leaders of the European Union, um, foreign ministers. It's a growing frustration um, with uh, the lack of humanitarian assistance, um, and to some extent, uh, concerns about what's happening in RAFA and uh, these threats that um, there might be a ground invasion before Ramadan if uh, there isn't a hostage deal. So the the international community in Canada, of course, um, is concerned um, uh, going forward. Uh, this, we're moving into month five of a war. This is the longest war uh, in this area since 1948, uh, 30,000 deaths and um, many, many thousands of injured. So people uh, want to see um, an end to it as quickly as possible, and they want to see people on the ground being dealt with. So mm. there's, there is frustration.
2: As you say, um, five months into this, there are still dozens of Israeli hostages being held. Hamas' fighting abilities have been diminished, certainly, but rockets are still being fired into into Israel. 30,000 Palestinians killed, 70,000 injured, not to mention the 1,200 Israelis um, who were killed on October 7th. Gaza is utterly destroyed, John. Civilians are starving. There doesn't seem to be a kind of firm and insight. So as a former ambassador, you know, this part of the world, you know, things about diplomacy, how are you thinking about where we are at, at
0: this point? Well, I'm, I'm I'm hopeful, I'm not optimistic, but I'm hopeful that the negotiations that are ongoing right now in Egypt, um, to secure a a six week ceasefire, a temporary ceasefire, that would see the release of uh, women and injured and elderly hostages who have been in a horrible situation ever since they were grabbed on October 7th, and that would see more humanitarian aid coming in, significantly more. So if you can get that, that, uh, those negotiations to succeed uh, and have a six-week break when this can happen, that can also possibly lead to a longer term ceasefire. I know there are difficulties. Uh, You know, Hamas wants a permanent ceasefire and wants Israel to leave and Israel wants to uh, retain the right um, to try and go after the, the political and military leaders. But let's have six weeks of ceasefire and get people released and get food in and then uh, perhaps there can be further negotiations um, that will lead towards the end of this conflict.
2: Yeah, the reporting this morning, at least thus far this morning, as these talks continue in Egypt with Hamas. Don't know if uh, Israel is there, but is that Israel has generally agreed to the framework of the deal that you sort of outlined there, and um, we have to wait and see if if Hamas um, agrees to it. Short of that, if they don't get a deal, John, like where do you sort of? View this going
0: well um, I you know I think the threat that Israel was making to um, do ground invasion and bombing in in Rafa uh, may have passed in a way um, uh, Herat, Haaretz is reporting that they don't have enough troops in the area right now to engage in such a uh, an operation, and clearly nothing has been done to move uh, the millions now of uh, Gazans that are in and around Rafa. So I can't see there being a, a ground invasion uh, by Ramadan. But if there's no hostage deal, uh, then I do think that um, Israel will continue to uh, to bomb and use artillery uh, in, in the south, in and around Rafah, and more people are going to die. Uh, they have not yet um, assassinated any of the three major leaders, and uh, they want to do that uh, at, at a minimum in order to declare some kind of victory.
2: We are seeing that um, Benny Gantz, um, top Israeli cabinet minister, coming to Washington for talks with U.S. officials, I think, including um, Vice President Kamala Harris. This has sort of sparked a rebuke uh, today from Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, according to the reporting, um, kind of exposing the cracks in the Israeli government. But Benjamin Netanyahu saw a huge protest last night. I mean, there have been many in Israel, but in Tel Aviv, I think it was one of one of the biggest. Um But he is, John Still, the Prime Minister of Israel, and he says Israel will fight until they achieve total victory. Does there need to be some kind of pressure from the U.S. in terms of maybe, I don't know, nudging, pushing uh, Benjamin Netanyahu out in a way, or at least suggesting, hey, it's time to go because maybe we have a better partner with Gantz or someone else?
0: Well, I I, I think you've you've hit on it, and I think that's why the Americans have invited Benny Gantz and not Bibi Netanyahu uh, to Washington, because they know what Bibi's going to say. And uh, they also know that um, while uh, Gantz uh, doesn't uh, hold uh, the full reins, even if he were to leave the war cabinet with his party, Bibi would still have uh, four seats uh, to keep his majority safe. But if were uh, to begin to show daylight on the policy, on uh, the the idea of defeating Hamas entirely. Uh, And if he were to leave the cabinet, um, then you uh, would see those protests, I think, increase in Israel, more pressure on Bibi to resign, who's taken no responsibility so far for uh, the war and um and and perhaps that's the way the united states has decided to go at this by uh, dividing and conquering and uh, and hoping that um that gans will show daylight and perhaps leave the the war cabinet
2: john you were the ambassador to israel i was there at the same time um in those years between 2006 and 2010 in Jerusalem. And I remember, you know, Tony Blair coming in all the time as the Middle East envoy trying to solve what this intractable dispute for years. There's so much talk about what happens after all this, and I'm just wondering, given your experience, how you're thinking about a longer-term future.
0: Well, the one glimmer of hope in all of this is that the idea of a two-state solution is now very much back on the international agenda. It's not on Bibi's agenda, um, but um, uh, it's very much um, seen uh, as uh, a future, uh, as a future uh, reality now, because um, there's an understanding that managing this conflict is no longer possible. October 7 can happen again. It can happen from the West Bank. It can happen from Gaza. Um, And you've got Hezbollah in the north. Um, So we've got to move to a a more uh, responsible solution, create a political horizon, do what's necessary to build up the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, free and fair elections there, and uh, get some governance into Gaza, and eventually some elections there. It's going to take time, and it's going to take leadership, not the current leadership, either uh, in uh, Ramallah or uh, in Jerusalem. But um, let's hope that, um, you know, in the, in the short to medium term, we'll see changes in that leadership, and people who at least want to create a horizon for peace.
2: Okay, John, we'll leave it there. I appreciate so much your time this morning. Thank you.
0: Thanks very much.
2: John Allen is a senior fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. He was also um, the Canadian ambassador to Israel from 2006 to 2010. So if words are a measure of how deeply humans value something, then truth must be deeply cherished. So writes Mitch Albom. Just think about all the expressions that have to do with it. To tell you the truth, can I be honest with you? No lie. The fact is, the sad truth, the undisputed truth, the truth of the matter. But do we humans really value the truth? And to what end? These questions are at the crux of Mitch's latest book. It's called The Little Liar. It's a sweeping novel that spans the Holocaust and an often terrible arc through much of the 20th century, exploring notions of truth, hope, revenge, and forgiveness. And just like his best-selling memoir, Tuesdays with Maury, and many subsequent books, Mitch explores human feelings set against a backdrop of pain and suffering. Mitch Albom is here with me. Mitch, it's good to meet you in person.
7: Thanks, Pia. Good to be here. So
2: the title of the book, The Little Liar, is a reference to the main character, a kid named Nico, who is known initially for telling the truth, um, but then through a big deception, tells a big deadly lie, which paves the way for many subsequent lies in his life. How did you come up with the story of The Little Liar?
7: So I was at a uh, Holocaust museum in Israel about 10 years ago. And they had videos on the wall of survivors telling little accounts of different things. And one of them was a woman who said, uh, people are always asking me, why did you get on those trains to the concentration camps if you knew that they were taking you to your death? Why didn't you fight? Why didn't you resist? And she said, they didn't understand that we didn't know that, that the Nazis would take Jewish people and under the threat of killing their families would say to them, you need to stand on the tracks and lie to these people and tell them that they're going to a good place and they're gonna be fine or else we'll kill your family. And so they trusted them and they went on. And I remember being so struck by that when I saw it and just thinking that that's a unique form of evil to use your own people and the sense of truth that you can trust somebody against you. So the germ of the idea kind of began there, sat in my brain for three, four books that I wrote, you know, on other, other things. And I never could figure out how to make a story out of it until I decided to make it a boy who had never told a lie in his life. And because of his honesty, um, when the Nazis invade his town in Greece where he lives and they find out that he's known in his neighborhood as never telling a lie, they decide to use him as a weapon and they do exactly that. They say, they keep him from his family and they say, well, we'll let you go back to your family after you help us do this little thing, these people are going to be confused. They're going to be getting on trains. Just tell them they're going to a good place and they're going to get jobs and they're going to be with their families. They'll be happy to hear it. And then you can go back to your family. And he does this for several weeks until on the very last day, he sees his own family being shoved inside one of these boxcars and they scream. And he finds out that these, these trains are actually going to Auschwitz and that the first lie of his life is going to be the worst lie of his life. Hmm. And, um, you know, I wanted to make a parable about truth and lying. I didn't necessarily want to write a book about the Holocaust per se, uh, but it turned out that that was a great backdrop if you're going to do a book about truth and lying because the truth was never more abused at least in recent history than during that time.
2: And so you wrote this book over the last number of years. And as you said, like you sat this this germ of an idea sat with you. I'm wondering though when it, you got down to it, was there something that you were seeing in the modern world about truth that said, yep, this is the time. This is, because you write about a lot of things, this is what I want to write about. Yeah,
7: yeah, there was. I mean, I think certainly in Canada, obviously where I live in the States, truth has become a very relative thing for people, everybody. Even the phrase, my truth, has become something that people kind of brag about. And it's a little a bit of an odd phrase to me because you can't have individual truths as there's, there's one, right? But we pick our cable news channel and we kind of view the world through that and we don't wanna see the other ones. And we have a very uh, you know, social media following that w- what we do is just that view of the world. And so people's sense of what is true and what is not is getting very skewed, you know? And the polls that come out about, you know, percentage of people who believe this or believe that is shocking sometimes, whether it's about politics or or even about the Holocaust. You know, the recent, a recent poll showed that one in five Americans believe the Holocaust was a myth. I mean, it's one in five. So, um, you know, I started to think now is probably a time to do these. I kind of do that anyhow, Pia, with my books. I sort of pick a theme that i want to do and then wrap a story around it which is maybe a little different than other authors they kind of start with the characters and the Mm. plot and the story i i always say well what's something that i wanted when i'm done with it i want to say yeah i said that about that and uh you know i did that with the five people you meet in heaven i wanted i didn't want to write a book about heaven i wanted to write a book about people who don't think that they matter in life and how how can i prove that they do i ended up creating a story about heaven i did a book recently called The Stranger in the Lifeboat, which wasn't supposed to be about people stranded in a lifeboat. I just used that because I wanted to write a book about belief. And The Little Liar, I wanted to write a book about truth and lying, but it ended up, you know, starting in the Holocaust and going for the next 40 years of the four characters' lives.
6: Yeah.
2: You know, It always reminds me of like nowadays we hear my truth so much. It wasn't so long ago we just said the truth or the fact was actually something we didn't debate and disagree with. It was a fact.
7: Right. You had to work your way around that, but you couldn't change it. Now we have the sense that we can just change it. And I think, Pia, that comes somewhat from social media's sort of intrusion into the, what should we call the fiction of our lives, so we can invent names for ourselves we can only post pictures that are really good and get rid of the bad ones you know there's nobody ever posts an ugly picture because they take fourteen thousand of them and just and and we're just sort of shaping the way that the world views us even the phony names we use on social media and things like that and and we hide behind you know our screens and it's a very dangerous thing for for the truth Uh, and i don't see it getting a whole lot better
2: let me ask this question about you then uh mitch album because we're all sort of like you know swimming in the sea that you're sort of yeah, setting out yeah. how how are you just sort of feeling about the state of the world
7: well i'm a hopeful person uh, i've been ridiculed for that a little bit um i remember that uh there was a critic once wrote a review of me just kind of taking me apart and at the end he wrote "Ah, uh, ah uh, he's just the king of hope <laughs> Good um, which I actually. thought was actually a pretty good throne to be sitting on, you know. I'm all right with that. And and so I feel that people have inside them um the capability of being better. I I do a good deal of, of, of charity work in my life at this stage of my life. I spend one week every month in Haiti at an orphanage that I run, and I've seen life much worse than we have it here in Canada or in America. I've seen abject, abject poverty. And I've seen the hope that comes out of that from the kids that we work with and take in. And, you know, I've watched them go from abandoned under a tree, left to die in the woods with no birth certificate, no name, no no identity to medical school. And so I'm a hopeful person, but I think, you know, hope is taking a beating right now. And uh, I'm hoping that Maybe we come to our senses about how we're treating one another and how we're treating the truth.
2: The opposite side, of course, of the coin to truth is lies, which also this book explores. And and the narrator of this book is a character called the truth and speaks directly to me as as, as the reader. And so at one point, the narrator says, you write, some lies are easier to believe than the truth, which I had to sit with for a bit and kind of like mull that over. Like, what are you getting at? their Mitch album. So what were you getting at there?
7: Well, I think that's pretty obvious. I mean, uh, the the ones that we want to believe uh, we find easier to accept. Uh, if we, if we see somebody that we, somebody tells us, you can't trust that person. he looks like somebody we don't trust. And somebody tells us some lie about him. Yeah, that must be who that person. It's a lot easier than just getting to know them and find it out, you know, or the reason that this happened must be, Blah, blah, blah. And it can go from the smallest thing up to where did COVID-19 come from, you know? Look at how many theories there are about that, and people choose to believe certain things based on kind of how they're oriented, you know? So uh, it was uh, the, the character of of the truth was pretty interesting. I, I really think this book, The Little Liar, kind of came together once I made that decision. I always say that there are two really big decisions you have to make when you're going to write a book. One is, you know, what's the story? And the second most important decision is what's the voice Hmm. and who are you going to tell it? And, you know, you think of like catcher in the rye if they decided to do that third person. It wouldn't, you know, nobody be talking about it today because it was the voice of Holden Caulfield that stayed in your mind. And I was trying to figure out how to tell this story because it was a sweeping story. As you pointed out, it covers 40 years and four characters and... I tried it in first person. I tried it in third person. But when I came up with this page, um, I just sort of sat down and said, you can trust the story you're about to read. You can trust it because I'm the only thing in this world you can trust. I'm the shadow you can't outrun at the end of your life, the mirror that holds your final reflection. I am truth. And this is a story about a boy who tried to break me. You know. And I, I wrote that and then I read it and I said... Yeah, I would turn the page on that <laughs> book. So I said, okay, I'm going to stay in that. And the whole rest of this book becomes narrated by the voice of truth, who was able to say during that period of time when the Nazis took over and people were believing the lies of Hitler and the rest, look at what you did to me. Look at how you destroyed me. Look at how you abused me. Why would you treat me this way? You know?" And you you can only have that voice and be that admonishing if... The conceit is, well, truth is telling you the story, so truth has earned that right to say it. You can't have a character doing that. Even yeah. people would say, oh, it's obnoxious. But when it's a virtue, a virtue gets to be virtuous, right? And and so it helped make the book what it is.
2: If you're just joining us on this Sunday morning, I'm Pia Chattopadhyay, and I'm joined here in our studio by celebrated author Mitch Album. We're talking about his latest novel, which is called The Little Liar. I wondered to myself, Mitch, if I had read this even, say... I don't know, eight months ago, seven months ago, if it might have resonated somewhat differently with me and and with readers, because this has come out at a time uh, of the Israel Hamas war now heading into month six. Um, it's a time of rising antisemitism. We know that that has been rising over the years as well, but it's a really urgent challenge we're all facing now. So as you sit with what you've written, um, What parallels or similarities are you seeing between what is happening today and the lead-up to the Holocaust?
7: Well, anti-Semitism comes around a couple of times every century. We always act like it's brand new because how could it happen? But if you historically go back and look, the Jews were blamed for the bubonic plague, you know? So it's nothing new. But the excuse of blaming Jewish people for something that people aren't happy about, that's when it gets really dangerous. And that's the pattern, unfortunately, that repeats. And what happened in Germany in the late 30s was, you know, a rise of a, of a despot who said, it's the Jews' fault. If we get rid of them, we'll be better off. And, and people started to believe that because when, you, when you're not happy and when life isn't good, and you're looking for a scapegoat and you're looking for somebody to blame, It's, it's you don't wanna be that target because everyone goes, yeah, 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 and that's it, and then it becomes a mob mentality. And there's some of that going on now. Um, some is towards Israel and some is straight towards Jewish people, and you know, trying to divide between where one begins and one ends is, is impossible, but it's also the insidious nature of it, because you know, every time you call it anti-Semitism, they say, no, it's anti-Zionism, and every time it's anti-Zionism, no, it's anti-Semitism. Um, I did not know when I wrote this book that it would ha- be you know, pertinent in that way, you know i wasn't trying as i say to write a holocaust-based book but what happens to nico there's four characters in the book there's nico the little boy there's his older brother sebastian who is nowhere near as honest as his brother is and who has a, a heartbreaking 14 year old crush on a little girl named fanny who's 12 And she has the same crush on Nico. So it's a little love triangle there in in junior high. That plays out over the years. Yeah, yeah. that plays out over the years. And then the Nazi Udo Graf who tricks Nico. And the book follows all four of them from that moment when that lie is told for the next 40 years. Sebastian gets sent to the concentration camps with his family and, and manages to survive, although none of the rest of them do. Fanny gets sent to the concentration camps, but is thrown out a train window and escapes, and has to live on the run for all that period of time. And Udo becomes the head commandant of, of Auschwitz. And um, and Nico spends the whole war trying to find his family to seek forgiveness. And that's the other big theme, Pia, of, of this book that I wanted to get across, which was forgiveness. Um, What would you do? Sort of if I had to say, well, what's the essence of the book in a question form? It would be, what's the biggest lie you ever told? And what would you do to be forgiven that lie? And Nico spends the whole rest of his life trying to be forgiven in his own weird way. He becomes a pathological liar because he can't face the truth of what he did. He starts making up names and passports and identities. He moves about the world. Uh, always changing his job and his name, and and of course, if you can be a brazen liar like that, he comes to America and becomes immensely successful, (laughs) because, you know, if you can lie, you can really succeed, and he becomes, you know, rich, but a recluse, um, always hiding what he knows, feels guilty about, and always trying to make up for it, and... It ultimately becomes a hopeful book. I hope you feel the same way, because I hate to... I don't want to scare people off when you talk about it, and you've used words like devastating, and I'm, I'm, fair enough, like, fair
2: enough, I'm yeah. like, who would want to pick that book up?
7: <laughs> but, um, but it has a hopeful ending, and it does have you know a, a, some inspiration from it, uh, because in the end, forgiveness and, and hope do triumph uh, and do prove to be the true things in life, as opposed to the lies that kind of dominate the story.
2: Not just saying this, I did love this book and there's a lot of themes. Um and I did walk away so thankful to have spent time with it and kind of thinking about these bigger themes of forgiveness and and truth and, and yes, and but still devastated yeah. by, by all that because these values, these emotions we carry, when we interrogate them, they can lead us to be devastated. Yeah.
7: Well you asked me about, you know, how I feel about the world, and there was a scene that I created in this book. Based on my conversations with survivors from the Holocaust, of which there are fewer and fewer and fewer, I mean, it's just so, if I had done this 10 years ago, I would have had so many more people I could have talked to. But there's a moment where the, the grandfather of the family, who's kind of the patriarch, you know, they've all been sent to Auschwitz, they're in the concentration camps, and at the end of the day, every day, he gathers his family members and some of the other people are around and insists that they each say one good thing that happened to them that day that they're grateful for. And you would think like in a concentration camp, how on earth could you do that? And they go around and one says, well, I got an extra spoonful of soup. One says, my rotted tooth fell out. And one says, the guard who always beats me, he wasn't on today, so I didn't get beaten. And one says, I saw a bird. And what is it in the human nature that makes us search for that one positive thing in a life, in a day that doesn't have any in it. Uh, And it was in Viktor Frankl's book, which I reread again, of course, A Man's Search for Meaning, where he wrote, the only people who survived were the ones who believed that somehow tomorrow it would be better. The ones who said this is hell and were never getting out of it, they all died. It didn't matter what the circumstances were, they died, whether they died by somebody else's hand or they just died by giving up. And that belief that, tomorrow will hold something that's better than today is what I cling to, is my my world view.
2: Where did you learn that?
7: Uh, family, you know, um, Maury from Tuesdays with Maury, you know. Uh, I mean, every week for months, you're visiting a man who's dying, you know, right from the very beginning, he's dying. And yet you walk away from the day that you spend with him feeling like the world is a wonderful place. It has an effect on you. Mm -hmm. Then you write a book to pay his medical bills about that experience. And maybe you think it's gonna fade. And then suddenly this book becomes a book that, I mean, nobody saw Tuesdays with Maury coming, nobody. I mean, including the dozen publishers who told me, take a hike, it's nobody's interested in it. It's boring, it's depressing. I mean, we could only found one publisher was even interested Mm -hmm. in Tuesdays with Maury. Uh, And they printed 20,000 books total for the world and thought, I thought I'd have them in the trunk of my car the rest of my life, giving them out at Christmas, you know. Uh, But when suddenly a book like that catches on and everybody in your life, outside of your family, wants to talk to you about that and you're reliving it and retelling it and retelling it over and over again, that worldview starts to become your own. You know, uh, you can't talk about it and live it and write about it and experience it. And, and you know, for years, and it's been 28 years now of me ta- talking about my time with Maury, it has become a bit of a, a, you know, a skin, you know? And so I just feel positive about things. And I, I just feel that um, no matter what, there's there's always hope. It's a gift, huh? It's a blessing for sure. Yeah. I
2: don't want to give too much away about The Little Liar, um, but one of the other big themes um, is revenge, and I want to talk about that because again, connected to all the truth, the lies, the reconciliation, is revenge. Um, I'm just trying to think. I guess the question is: Is revenge against perpetrators justified?
7: Revenge is a subtheme in the book in an interesting way, um, because Sebastian, for almost all the story, wants to take revenge on his brother. Because he feels that his brother lied on those train platforms and was responsible for them being tricked into going, and that his brother was somehow working with the Nazis, which he wasn't, and he becomes a, a you know a Nazi hunter essentially to track down the evil doers, but also to get his brother. And decades pass by, and he can't let it go, and he—it's all wrong. He's based all this fervor and this this this. Uh, energy that he's putting into revenge on someone that didn't actually do him wrong. And that's one of the dangers of dedicating yourself to revenge. You think that it's going to solve everything and it doesn't always. And and so um do I think revenge is sometimes justified? Yes, I can't deny that, you know, in terms of murders and things like that. I I, I you know, I understand why people want to see it done. Um, on the other hand, my experience with it is it's never as satisfying as you think it's going to be.
2: Except for the pickle of revenge, and, and this comes out in your book, is that someone might be revengeful, but they see it as fixing an injustice or a search right. for justice. They see it as
7: justice, right. And I mean, we have justice systems that, that do that. I mean, our, your justice system, our justice the same way. It's, is that revenge or is it, you know, you did something, you have to pay for it. Um, And those who say, well, don't make people pay for it or don't make them pay for it for that long or don't make them suffer because you have to have compassion and forgiveness or whatever, take one view of it and others say, no, you did the deed, you pay the price and that's what it is. Take a different view of it. I'm, uh, I'll just, I'll just leave it there. I'm not qualified (laughs) to, to pass judgment on it.
2: Let's get back to the truth because you write about, there's, you know, I've dog-eared pages as I read your book and and one of the biggest dog ears is when you talk about this idea of universal truth and you talk about grief and say so there's a universal truth in grief and if there is as you suggest that there is a universal truth of grief and loss and this this is a universal collective understanding of this then can we also get a collective understanding of empathy
7: well i i, I do think that there are things that are universal that way and empathy I do think is one of them, um, as is loss. And I think, that, I think the more we experience loss, the more empathy we have. Again, I'll go back to Tuesdays with Maury. I remember an incident with Maury where we, we rarely watched any television during those visits. He had a black and white set in his office, but for one reason, we were, he had it on this day and there was some war scene from, I think it was Bosnia at the time, some mid nineties, and he watched it, and he began to cry. And I said, why are you crying? He said, well, this is just awful. These people, it's just awful. What's happening to them? And I said, yeah, but you ever been to Bosnia? No. You know anybody there? No. I said, so why is this affecting you this way? He said, Mitch, when you really realize you're going to die, not just a theoretical thing, but, you know, your days are numbered, you have such empathy for the suffering of everybody else. And I... I feel things that I never felt before. Before I got my diagnosis, you know, um, that I am able to empathize with people in a different way, and I believe that that exists in all of us underneath the surface, and it just takes an event or a triggering thing to go through. I, you know, the orphanage that we have in Haiti, where I where I go every month, we, we ended up uh, adopting one of the children there when she had a brain tumor. a uh, Little girl named Chica, and she was five, and You know, we thought that we could save her, and we brought her to America. And for two years, we traveled around the world trying to save her. Um, But in the end, uh, she had a a terrible brain tumor, and nobody ever survives it. It's called DIPG, and she died. And uh, many things happened to me as a result of that in my emotions and, and all. But one of them is that my empathy towards anyone who has a child or who are struggling with a child is, is, is sky high. And it wasn't necessarily that level before. So why? I'm in the same person. Why did it change? Because some level, something was stripped off of me that, you know, that was sitting on top of it, but it was always there. You can't invent it. And I believe that we all have that. And if we just spent more time in situations that make us empathetic to other people, like working with the poor, working with orphans, or whatever, you would find that the empathy is inside you. It's mm. just, it's just you got to peel the wrapping off of it, and and so I do think that empathy is is a universal trait um, because loss and love are universal traits, and those things are part of the stew that make up empathy.
2: I'm sorry, you lost Chica.
7: Yeah, I am too.
2: You know, you said a little while ago, and I can't remember exactly how you put it, but whenever you sit down to write a book, that you want people to kind of walk away like, this is the thing, this is, I can't remember exactly how you put it, but what is the thing with this book that you want us to walk away with?
7: Uh, the truth is precious, and that forgiveness is divine in its own sort of way, um, and that no matter what, um, hope can prevail. I mean, those are the three sort of takeaways from The Little Liar. It's a beautiful book. I'm, I'm so glad you, yeah. you read it, Pia, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm equally No, even more glad that you liked it. (laughs) I did.
2: And uh, so will many of our listeners. Thank you. My pleasure. Mitch Albom's latest novel is called The Little Liar. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. This is The Sunday Magazine. And now, my friends, it is time once again for our monthly contest of quick wits, lateral thinking, and improbable knowledge of weird jargon from sailing to chicken farming and everything in between. Yes, it is time to play That's Puzzling. Each and every month, I take on one of my CBC colleagues, as well as a super smart listener of the Sunday magazine, in a series of word challenges. And those puzzles are devised in a dank underground lair by the man who brings the fun and the suffering. So, mashed together, he's the king of fuffering. Hi, Peter Brown.
1: Hello, Pia. Welcome, Pia, to a very special edition of That's Puzzling, (laughs) a very Saskatchewanian edition of That's Puzzling. Listeners will know that you grew up in Saskatoon, as did I, but that's not enough Saskatchewan for That's Puzzling. Joining us now in our Regina studio, the host of CBC Saskatchewan's morning show, The Morning Edition, Stephanie Langenegger. Hello, Stephanie. Hello, Peter Brown. We worked together in the previous millennium. And now you're getting up at 3:40 in the morning because you do a morning show, and I'm getting up at 3:40 in the morning because I'm old and I have to pee again.
6: <laughs> we started working when you were doing some comedy pieces for the Morning Edition. That's so it's nice right. Nice to talk with you again. Nice
1: to see you. So, how have you been? 32 years later.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we gotta move on, people. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Southern Saskatchewan versus Northern Saskatchewan. That's right. Peak.
1: Stephanie yep. is representing Regina. Pia grew up in Saskatoon. Wait, and- hold
2: on. You keep saying I grew up, like I I, I just left and, and like my folks still live there. I, my three best friends still live there. I still am of Saskatoon.
1: Pia's soul still lives in Saskatoon. So right here, right now, we're going to decide Regina or Saskatoon, which is better. Saskatoon. I will be the impartial judge. <laughs> um, Stephanie- You're the Davidson. I am the Davidson.
2: For people outside of Saskatchewan, Davidson is a midway point when you drive from Saskatoon to Regina. But for people outside of Saskatchewan, also know that Saskatoon is the much better
1: city. Wow. And so it begins. (laughs) Stephanie, given that you're representing all of southern Saskatchewan, are you a puzzler?
6: I love puzzles and games. I'm a little bit poor under pressure, but I'm super competitive, so that ought to make up for it.
1: You're going to fit right in. (laughs) <laughs> Poor under pressure and competitive is the exact skill set you need for today. We are going far afield for our final competitor. They won their spot in today's game by taking on our listener challenge. We asked you to invent a term for realizing you care about the Oscars, even though you haven't seen any of the movies. And our winning entry is. Imposter syndrome. <laughs> Imposter syndrome. Well done in a magnificent deep voice by our winning listener, Jim Danahy, in Quispamsis, New Brunswick. Hello, Jim. Well pronounced, Peter. Thank you. Thank you. Let's go further. What's the correct term for someone who lives in Quispamsis? Is it Quispamsisian? Quispamsister?
8: Actually, actually they're derisively referred to by St. Johners as
1: the Valley People. Oh, (laughs) Soon to be a Stephen King movie. <laughs> it sounds
8: like it, yes.
1: Wow. Now you. Now that you are among the Valley people, you moved to Chris sis from Toronto, which means you got an extra hour and 45 in your day that you don't have to spend in traffic. What are you doing with all that free time?
8: Oh, let me tell you, moving to a city with no traffic reporters. Oh if God. there's a problem on the bridge, it's on the news. Wow. So, yeah. The... The um, reduction in psychic energy loss was amazing. Now, we've been coming here for years. I'm married to a New Brunswicker. Our children have been coming here for their entire lives. So it's not new. But it it is different being a resident, and it's a pretty wonderful place. A lot of people say it's the Hamilton, for Ontario folks, of... The Atlantic Coast, it's sort of blue collar. It's got no no airs or attitudes, but it's spectacularly beautiful on the ocean and two huge, beautiful rivers, bald eagles, all kinds of water life.
2: So, it's Jim, um, although I'm from Saskatchewan and I live in Toronto, and I love both these places, I have a connection to New Brunswick. from via my mother-in-law, who um, summers, uh, in uh, on Yarmouth Beach, just outside of Bathurst. And every year or two when we go, I always try and take in a new part of New Brunswick. Last year, last summer, I went to St. John, and uh, we drove out to the Burbs, as we like to call them in Toronto, but they're not the Burbs, but we came to Quispam, says, Jim, I want you to tell Peter and Stephanie and our listening audience, what's the nickname? Quispam. Quispam. Isn't yep. that amazing?
8: We've got a lot of syllables here because Quispam sis is on the Kennebecasis Valley. Wow. And it's yeah, there's we're 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 rich in syllables.
2: Sounds like a good place for a chattapad to move in. Rich in syllables over here. <laughs> Even a uh, Yes.
1: If somehow yes. the families could marry, they would be this quispam Sis chattapati Langeneggers. All right. We are now ready to put the quiz in Quispam sis. <laughs> Stephanie, Jim, Pia, let's play That's Puzzling. We start today, as always, with a definition challenge. I am going to give you a word and three possible definitions. One of those definitions is real. Two, I have made up. My goal is to fool you. Your challenge is to spot the correct definition. Again, one is real. Two are fake. Spot the right answer. It's worth a point. Today's word is glabella. G-L-A-B-E-L-L-A. Glabella. Which of the following is a real definition of the word glabella? Is it a microorganism that lives on the ocean floor? Is it the area between your eyebrows? Or is it an ornate pillar in Gothic architecture? So you've got the microorganism on the ocean floor, the space between your eyebrows, or the ornate pillar in Gothic architecture. Which is the real meaning of glabella? Pia, we come to you first.
2: Peter. How many uh, rounds this season, by which I mean from September to now, of that's puzzling, have I won? Zero. (laughs) You're supposed to hesitate there for a moment. It's true. Absolutely (laughs) zero. Yep. Today I am brimming with confidence. And when you said glabella, now I could, this could be like me throwing my competitors, but I was brimming with confidence because I know what a glabella is. Wow. (laughs) And now I'm going to tell you. Okay. Okay, first of all, if. You know, if I didn't know what this was, because I do know what it is. See how I'm doing this? Um, Glabella, like it sounds like a medically weird term, like science, medicine kind of thing. So I would lean towards the microorganism. But ornate pillar, like a glabella, sounds lovely. (laughs) But as a woman who talks a lot with her... Other women friends about the lines that are starting to appear on our faces, including the glabella, which is that space between your eyebrows.
6: It's eyebrows, babe. It's eyebrows.
1: Pia seems confident. She is very confident. Her confidence has sometimes been misplaced. Stephanie, what do you think? Oh, gosh.
6: It's throwing me because I wanted it to be that space, but then I thought it's probably the gothic pillar. But now Pia has me going back to the space space. I'm going to go with going
1: the space between. Going to go with between. the space, Jim.
8: Pia's oh gosh, convinced this, this,
1: it's the eyebrow space. Stephanie agrees. What do you think?
8: I mean, it does sound an- anatomical, doesn't it? It Sounds like something that should be dangling at the back of my throat or something. I've, so I would have thought um, microorganism as well. It, it does. It, I mean, I can imagine how it would be part of an ornate bit of a cornice molding, and it <laughs> would go with a glabella, but. Um, Yeah, I'm going to go with the pack here and just uh, say it's the space between
1: eyebrows. All of you are right, and I failed. Mm -hmm. Pia was right, and you were right to follow her. And I did not fool you, and everyone is happy but me. So the game's going great. The score is one for Pia, one for Jim, one for Stephanie. So far, it's up for grabs. Now we played round two. Round two is my favorite game, Potato Potato. I am going to give you two words... And ask you to tell me what other word means both of those things and has two different pronunciations. So, for example, if I ask you to give me a kind of fish and a kind of guitar, the answer would be B-A-S-S. Bass is a kind of fish. Bass is a kind of guitar. Spelled the same, but pronounced differently, and they have different meanings.
6: Do we get fewer points if we need a hint?
1: No. Hints are free. Great question. I will offer each question to one player. If the first person misses, the others can steal. These are worth two points. I will say this first round is comparatively easy. No pressure. Let's play potato potato. Stephanie, you're up first. I am looking for a word that means communicate and a race between teams.
6: Communicate. A race.
1: A race a between race teams. Race between. Yes teams uh, a, a single like a oh.
6: match or um maybe i better go to the communicate
1: i think ra- race i think race between teams is the more accessible
6: race between teams Yes. Yeah. competition race track
1: i think i heard pia squeak by. and she might have it great
6: would um you? may i have a hint
1: <laughs> yes which hint would you like communicate or race between teams
6: communicate please
1: um, to communicate as in to pass along a piece of information. So I tell you something, and you then blank it to Pia.
6: Tell. I tell it to Pia. I share it with Pia. I race to tell Pia. Yeah. Mm. And I, the other one, there's communicate, and then there's a match between teams. A race
1: between teams.
6: A race between teams. T-
1: team. Ollie meet? I don't know. I'm going to call it, Stephanie. Now, Pia, stay calm. The first opportunity to steal goes to Jim. Jim, do you have it? Uh, so a er, er, race
8: between teams sounds to me like a a relay and one type and and then I'm thinking about communicate so I just, I don't relate?
2: Jim, just mispronounce, and I, I use mispronouncing quotes, <laughs> the word Relay.
1: Relay. <laughs> Yeah. Relay. relay. to Relay the information. Jim, oh, Pia pushed relay. you through the doorway. <laughs> a relay is a race with teams. And to relay the information is to relay pass along or communicate. Oh. It's the same spelling, relay and relay. They feel like the bachelor. Jim, do you accept these points? <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you. Whether I All deserve right. them or not. Thank you, Pia. All right, Jim, we're coming to you for our next one. Jim, we are looking for a word. It's the same spelling, different pronunciations, that means instruction book and what you put on before paint. Instruction book and what you oh, put on, on before paint.
6: can <laughs> I have that one? It's not basic bass stuff.
8: So, luck of the so draw, what you Stephanie. put on before, before paint is a primer and an instruction book, at least in ancient times... Used to be primer as well, wasn't it? Then we have those on there. So I'm sorry. Yeah, thinking out loud there, but I'm going to say primer. There
1: is another way of saying it, the instruction book. Oh, a primer? Yes. Ah, Okay. Primer and a primer. This seems like our mission today, like Jim has thrown a (laughs) curling rock and we are all just sweeping it into the rings. (laughs) Jim. You got to twist me left or right. I'll go where you point me. So Stephanie would have had that one, and that is luck of the draw stuff. Uh, Jim has five points. Pia has one. Stephanie has one. There's lots still to play for. Pia, it is your turn at last. Whew. We are looking for a word that means a sideboard meal. Sideboard meal, and there's a hint. Or and or strike repeatedly. To strike repeatedly.
2: A sideboard meal.
1: Yeah. Mm. What
2: is a sideboard like? That thing you have, like to to. What's a sideboard?
1: So a sideboard is uh, a piece of furniture that might be in your dining room where you put out different
2: dishes. Yeah, why would I have a meal there? (laughs) That's what I'm like. Does a sideboard have a different meaning? Why am I having a meal on my sideboard?
1: Why are you putting the food (laughs) on your sideboard? What kind of meal is that?
2: Charcuterie, a buffet. What's uh, what a- in the
1: spirit of your helping Jim? You have said the right thing,
2: Buffett. Yes. yes, Buffett. Yes, Buffett.
6: Oh,
1: God. Jim has five, Pia has three, Stephanie has one. It's still all possible. Womp. Womp. One more round to come, Stephanie. You can still do it. It's time now for our final round. We are going to stick with potato, potato. And before we play this round, Pia, I'd like to remind you of something you said at the end of last month's game. Never do this. Let's hear that now.
2: And as always, Mr. Peter Brown, thank you for making up the puzzles, for stumping us, or at least trying to. Did okay this time, my friend. They can be harder next time. Oh!
1: They can be harder next time. Pia, I have spent weeks thinking of the hardest possible potato-potato clue. You'll be happy to hear I did not use it this week. It is unionized and unionized. That's what you pushed me to, Pia, oh. just so you know what I'm <laughs> capable of if oh. angered. Oh. But we are not playing uh, formed a labor union and didn't lose any of its electrons, oh. unionized and unionized, because that would not have that's been good for anyone. That's a different
2: game. That's a different game. Yeah, I was that's a game to.
1: Called, called, I'll show you, Pia. <laughs> <laughs> so yes. these aren't. These aren't that brutal, but they are harder. But they're no no—they're somewhere between base, bass, and unionized and me, They're in the middle. Let me
2: remind my contestants what I said at the beginning of this. Peter, how many times have I won this? That's puzzling this year?
1: Uh, let me just... Still none. Yep, zero. All right. For our final round today, we are going to stick with potato, potato. As I said, these aren't brutal, but they are harder. We're going to start with Stephanie. Stephanie, we are looking for a word that means suggest... And very personal. Suggest and very personal. And there are hints available. I'm not
6: talking this time. Suggest. <laughs> suggest. Proffer.
1: And very personal. I think very personal is the more accessible end of this clue, if that helps.
6: So she gets okay, a free hint personal. and then can ask for a hint?
2: Yep. There, Brown? Okay.
6: Yep. Yeah, that's right, Pia. Uh, so very personal. Mine.
1: Close getting there
6: close. <laughs> closer closer close closer closer.
1: no that hyperventilating <laughs> means pia oh. just got it so she think, oh she thinks. oh yeah. i
2: see that
6: again could so be throwing suggest, you guys can you tell me what the because pia's talking too yeah. much can you please tell me what the <laughs> clues are again
1: yes suggest and very personal and if you can have you can have a hint for either one of those
6: i would have a hint for suggest please
1: um you don't come out and say it but you let on Oh. Shoot. The person if it was past tense, they blank, they
6: they close. imply infer. No, you i infer what you've implied.
1: Mhm. Um,
6: so you hint, you imply, you
1: im and
6: the starts other with one the is the right letter. The
1: other one is oh, he just told you oh. that it starts with the right letter. Just
6: with the i. Yes. The N.
1: So yeah. Oh, yeah, you've got the right start. Remember very personal. Very and Jim personal. has told you Jim has told you it starts with i n because he's he's quite in- the quispem sissian. Inner Close a close personal relationship could be described as in <laughs> That's the sound. Like I'm word.
6: in tight, I'm in No, it's a... in I'm Oh, I see.
8: And there's a uh-huh. department in stores for women's wear.
6: Oh, Jim!
2: I was. <laughs> I, I, really Stephanie like s- told me to shut up, and so I did <laughs> until that.
6: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Jim's thinking I don't of, know. Jim's thinking of blank know. apparel. Oh, Stephanie. I think Jim
6: is going to deserve... Deserves. Well, Let's see. Does well, it go to Jim or does it go it to, to Pia? It I goes to
1: Pia. I don't need Jim's no! little
2: egging on there helping <laughs> Stephanie. We go to
1: whoever's in second, which is Pia yeah. in this case.
2: So, Steph, get ready to make an audible groan. Int, intimate and intimate. Oh, of course.
1: Uh, sorry, Stephanie. We, I was so sure you were going to get there. Jim... Who received the help from Pia, then tried to pass it along to Stephanie, so now morally we are all neutral.
2: I think someone has to help me out now.
1: <laughs> Jim is at five, Pia is at five, and Pia gets our next clue. Okay. Pia, your word can mean either play or produce a gain.
2: Produce again.
1: Yes. Like repeat. Uh, pr- that kind of word. Yeah. Produce again. And on their hints available. Produce again. Play.
2: Oh, God. Uh, play's going to be hard, I think. I think I yep. should lean on produce again. So if you do something over and over, you're repeating it. Repetition, um, produce again. Um, Not produce again, Uh, and it's produce again. Um, Produce again. I'm going to take the hint, Pete.
1: Okay, scientists tried to blank the original experiment. Yeah, replicate,
2: replicate. No, close. Um, uh, Okay, say the hint again. Oh my God, I'm panicking. Can you guys hear me panicking? I'm really panicking. So it's
1: play or produce again. And
2: what is the hint for produce again? And the hint
1: for produce again is scientists tried to... Blank the experiment, the original experiment, to blank the conditions of the original experiment.
2: Oh my gosh, it! Oh, everyone, all 38 million or 40 million Canadians are who are listening to the CBC because that's how many people listen to this show. Um, are yelling at their radio. Uh, repli- what is it? Replicate. You're so close. I know, Jim. Help me out. You gave
6: Steph the first two letters. What are they, Jim? Yeah, but I'm not tied with him. Oh, jeez. You,
8: you, you actually, one of, one of your words started with the first two letters. Okay, replicate.
2: But I've always said replicate. One of my letters started. Repeat.
8: Same two letters at
1: the front.
2: Re- I know. Uh, redo. Play. Oh, I'm
1: going to close it pretty soon. I know. Pia. I
2: know the the time's running. Play, up.
1: play is a little vague. It's it's um to engage in a hobby that you enjoy.
2: To engage in a. Oh my God! I'm just panicking. I okay.
1: L- okay. I'm going to yep. close it down soon, Pia. Oh, you got to close down. I'm so And we, know, and we so think mad Jim about- has it. Uh, all right, Pia. I'm going to give it to Jim. What is it?
8: I mean, the the produce again was the one that helped me with it because you're you're redoing something. So I yep. I thought recreate and then recreate.
3: Yep.
1: That is correct. Oh, Pia. Ugh. You were so close. The good thing is we're all from Saskatchewan, so we all honestly believe that next time it will go better.
2: It's not Jim's not from Saskatchewan, <laughs> first of all. Oh, and yeah, since but, he's uh, winning, I'm not giving him honorary citizenship for Saskatchewan. Wow. No,
8: but all I right. am in the other drive through province. Everyone goes through on their way to somewhere else. So don't oh. we have that in common?
1: Okay. Jim, you have offered the most help to your competitors of anyone, and yet... You hold the lead as you take this last question. Wow. If you get this right, you're going to win. If not, and then if Stephanie misses it, Pia has a chance to tie and we go to a tiebreaker and this will enter its third hour. Jim, I'm looking for a word that means heroic act and take advantage. Heroic act, which is a noun, and take advantage, which is a verb. <laughs> <laughs> Pia's getting Somebody everyone Pia's else's <laughs> but her own. Uh, heroic, so heroic act... Yeah, you just got and, the wrong questions today.
8: Yeah. So gap could be like a feat. Like that. Take advantage eh, or take advantage. So, so could I have a hint, please? For which part of the clue? Um, why don't we try take advantage?
1: Yeah. A greedy company might do this to its workers.
8: Hmm. So a greedy company might take advantage, might use, might... Ooh, feeling like Pia felt. Um, so, so they take advantage, might use, so might abuse, use, and then it's gonna. Oh, I'm struggling. I'm struggling.
1: I am struggling i see Southie okay. Jim. You do not have Jim to help you.
8: <laughs> that's your tragedy. Yeah, but I, I was, yeah, I was carried over in the first two rounds. I yeah, remember. that's true. So, so, so feet or. Heroic yeah. act would be sacrifice
1: or, um, oh, gosh, what other heroic act could Give you me? a few more seconds, Jim, and then the suspense will begin. Stumped. I got better, better hand it on. Okay. Stephanie, do you happen to know?
6: Well, Peter, wouldn't it be nice if I did? I still oh, couldn't no. win, but I dig myself out of the basement.
1: Okay. I don't know. Pia, if you know this, we will tie... And you and Jim will go to a tiebreaker, and then Stephanie will judge who wins. Do you have it, Pia? A heroic act and take advantage is what?
2: I actually don't know this. I was trying to throw everyone by my fake confidence, but I do not know take advantage as in a company and heroic act. I just can't work it out.
1: So the answer is a heroic act is an exploit and take advantage is exploit.
2: Wait, is Stephanie still with us? Because she is curiously very silent. Are you okay, Steph? I'm okay, Pia.
1: Oh, okay. Stephanie! You know it's hard. It's hard to say which part of Saskatchewan wins because we all feel like we've also lost a little. But also, congratulations to Jim. It's a Quiz Pam Sissian victory. Quiz Pam. Putting the quiz in Quiz Pam. It's Jim. Thank you for playing.
8: Oh, thank you, Pia. You you peered it forward in those early rounds. <laughs> oh, very nice. <laughs>
2: Thank you, Jim. You're, I love Quiz Pam. I'm going to come visit you next time I'm in that. Uh, Please, vicinity. there's
8: always a warm bed and a good meal.
0: Great,
1: Stephanie. Bad luck on on which questions you got. Thank you for playing. Steph,
2: it uh, was lovely to hear your great voice. again, although I, sorry, I shushed you. I know that's fine. I, I listen, was panicking. No, was it's panicking. good. It's I good. Panicking. I need to be shushed uh, from time to time. Also, <laughs> I do listen to you because I use the CBC Listen Up to listen to the Morning Edition in Saskatchewan.
1: Thank you, players. Thank you for listening at home. That was a very emotional round, but uh, I'm I'm glad we played it. I'm glad we came through this together. And that is That's Puzzling.
2: Oh, boy. Exploit. Ugh. Okay, well, thank you, Peter and Stephanie and Jim. We'll get better. A win this year at some point. We will be back in April with another round of That's Puzzling. And hey, hey, if you want to play along with us on air, you've got to work for it. In honor of our Saskatchewanians and our Quispamcisian, we want you to invent a word to describe the act of yelling at the radio when you hear your city or province mispronounced. For example, it is not Saskatchewan. Just please stop saying it that way, please. Email your made up word to sunday at cbc.ca. Put that's puzzling in the subject line and please include your phone number. You have until the end of next Sunday, March 10th, to submit your word. The winner will play with us in April and take home a coveted Sunday Magazine mug or notebook. That's it for this week on the Sunday magazine. Our producers are Levi Garber, Brianna Goss, Andrea Huang, Adam Killick, Pete Mitten, and Ronde Williams. We had additional help from Audio Tech Juliana Romanic. Our senior producer is Howard Goldenthal. Our executive producer is Brian Colton. I'm Pia Chattapad. I thank you for lending us your ear. Till next Sunday.